Welcome to this episode of Teaching at the Top, Black Men in Academia. This podcast interviews different black men to understand their journeys into academia, to inspire young people and in particular black men to consider a career in academia. This week we have a really special guest, Associate Professor Sumikai Chiguru, Associate Professor at Oxford, who will be talking to us about his journey, his thoughts on academia in Britain, and much more. Join us as we get into this episode. Very much looking forward to engaging with you all this evening. Brilliant. So um, I guess it's it's, it's, it's exciting um, uh, to have you on board. And I guess um, I just wanted to kick off the conversation with just to tell us a bit more about yourself for those who haven't um, kind of heard about you before. Um, how would you kind of introduce yourself? <laughs> how would you, how would, I know I've introduced you, but how would you introduce yourself? Well, I guess um, kind of in the spirit of this discussion, um, Richard, as, of your, as you've already said, uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Oxford, specializing in African politics, um, teaching in the Department of International Development. Um, my broad areas of work kind of straddle two different domains of inquiry. Um, on the one hand, uh, I'm interested in the politics of global health and of epidemics in Africa, but I'd hasten to add that I'd been working in this area before COVID made it cool. Um, and on the other hand, I'm really interested in the politics of race, identity, and post-colonialism. Um, but I took a rather circuitous route to get to where I am. Um, I moved to the UK uh, when I was 16 years old from Zimbabwe, so I'm a first-generation migrant. Um, and as with many migrants, uh, I wanted to enter a respectable profession. Um, and so I went to medical school at Newcastle University, um, where I studied for, for six years. And I'm just going to tell kind of one key story, maybe, from that period of my life, which I think contextualizes the journey that I was on. So at Newcastle Med School, the end of the fourth year of study, you have the opportunity to take um, an elective placement pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, I chose to go to South Africa um, to spend two months, a month working in a rural hospital and a month working um, in an urban center. The rural hospital I worked in was in a rural part of the Transkei, not too far from where Nelson Mandela was born and grew up. Um, and I worked in this really tiny hospital. I mean, just a few buildings, all sort of single story bungalows, corrugated roofs and so on. And while we were there, I saw patterns of illness that my medical training in the UK had not prepared me for. So I saw a lot of people um, with really clinically advanced HIV. I saw uh, young women in full-blown eclampsia, um, a lot of violent injury and so on. And just moving from that rural setting to the urban setting, the inequality was really, really stark. The urban hospital was much better staffed and equipped than the rural setting, even though they were both government hospitals. So there was something a little bit more complicated than um, the difference between private and public care, although that was kind of feature of it. And HIV just seemed to touch every aspect of clinical life when I was in SA. And I remember reading um, a piece from a South African journalist who wrote, shelve the abiding fiction that disasters don't discriminate, that they flatten everything in their path with democratic disregard. Plagues zero in on the dispossessed, on those forced to build their lives in the paths of danger. 
Um, and evidently that quote stayed with me ever since. And it's partly because um, it signaled something that I wasn't learning in medical school, that illness is not just something that we react to clinically, but is conditioned by our social circumstances. Mm. And our social circumstances are conditioned by history, politics, and culture. And I think that was kind of the seed that took me many years to actualize it, but it was kind of the seed that set me on the path to starting to studying the politics of disease. I think that's really, really exciting. There's so much to unpick in what you've said, but I guess, I guess um, I liked how you kind of rounded that off very nicely. But I just guess for for the, those listening and those um, those in the audience, I think one of the key things is what you said about how we are shaped by, uh, you know, by society, by politics and just a broader society. So I guess the theme of this uh, podcast is black men in academia, uh, you know, uh, and and teaching at the top. I think, how do you, how would you um, characterize that experience as a a, a black man in academia? Um, And and how's, how's that kind of shaped you? from your perspective? Sure, yeah. So um, I'll say a little bit about how I kind of got to my current position um, and then kind of tackle your question more directly. Um, So after I'd finished medical school, I spent three years in medical practice and eventually decided to take the plunge that um, I'd been thinking about for a while. So I resigned from the NHS Uh, I won a scholarship to go to Oxford, where I did a master's in African studies. And I think part of the motivation, um, which I think is part of the Black experience in Britain, is that sense of trying to connect one's um, identity and lived experience to something larger, to situate it within some kind of historical frame. And even though I had come from Africa, I had received a very colonial education Mm -hmm. in and learned very little about the kind of complexities and richness of African history. So that was part of the attraction. And for all the perversity of this, Oxford is the place where a lot of the best books and records on Africa happen to be kept. <laughs> and what I found, um, so, I, so I, you know, I did my master's, then I stayed on for a PhD. And then shortly after I finished my PhD, um, I was appointed, I was hired as an associate professor. Um, And in many ways, I was extremely lucky in that academia is not an easy place to be. Um, And it it keeps winnowing people out every step of the way, you know. Um, So it's kind of pyramidal in in, in structure as you try to stay on, you know, past the PhD and into the job market. And I think the, you know, in Oxford, I think we have at the moment seven black professors in the whole in the whole university. So to give you a bit of perspective, uh, as I'm sure many of the listeners will know, Oxford is a kind of college-based university, it's a collegiate system. Within each college, you have about, on average, let's say 40 fellows. Um, so if you multiply that by the fact that there are 38 colleges, and within all of that, there are only about seven black professors, that kind of gives you um, some perspective. I think we're hiring one other or maybe two. Uh, Only two. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really quite an isolating experience in that respect. So I would say one kind of key theme maybe that I would bring out is as a black man, I have had to learn um, how to straddle different worlds and how to speak different languages. Um, because the, lo- the, the, 
culture of the institution is, uh, and somewhere like Oxford is extremely English um, and essentially steeped in whiteness, even though whiteness is kind of hard to point at. Um, and therefore there are certain assumptions about the world, certain assumptions about where people are coming from, certain assumptions about what it might mean to belong in an institution of that kind. And the, the reality is one has to learn how to move, how to navigate, how to negotiate um, those kinds of arenas on one hand. And on the other hand, you can't do that so much that you lose what makes you unique, either as an intellectual or an individual, you know? Yeah. And um, I don't think that this was advice um, that was widely circulated when I was an undergraduate, but by the time I got to applying for my job, I was much more confident to say, yeah, I do, this is the unusual trajectory I've taken in my profession. Um, and this is what makes me an interesting candidate. And I'm not afraid to ask some difficult questions about colonialism and race, even as they pay, pertain to our own institution. Um, and so I think it's kind of constantly walking that fine line between really trying to decode your social environment, learning to speak its language, and at the same time, not really losing sight of what makes you who you are. Um, and I think for me, that's the iterative um, kind of struggle or struggle is too strong a word, but it's the kind of the, the, the iterative ongoing challenge of my life. Okay, very, very interesting. Um, I just wanted to touch on because we have quite a few women and I know that um, we're going to open up for questioning for questions shortly but I guess I just wanted to get this question in <laughs> but uh, um, we have quite a few uh, so at, at Cambridge for example they um, they have quite you know they similar numbers to Oxford basically yeah. but one of the things that is noticed is that there's more women in academia um, than m black men so I just you know I don't know whether you could potentially talk to the idea of the female, do you think the female experience in academia that you that you observed or heard about is slightly different? Yeah, it's a good question um, and really complicated. There's obviously, you know, these are formidably complicated institutions in that, uh, you know, Oxford is radically decentralized, which means that within different disciplines, within different departments, uh, within different colleges, there are different approaches to to how these um, you know, questions of equity of balance are managed. Um, so maybe what I'd say is, I think part of the issue, trying to think, so part of the issue is, is um, kind of one of career pipeline, right? Um, and I think for many, my, many minorities of different stripes, um, minority in the sense of not kind of representing the dominant character of the university, um, knowing how you get from, say, undergraduate to master's to PhD to a permanent job is not always obvious. And I think that these things can be racialized and gendered in, you know, some subtle and some not so subtle ways. You know, if you don't have the right mentorship structure, if the people at the top all look a certain kind of way, uh, which then creates the impression of, you know, who gets to the top and who doesn't. Um, certainly in a place like Oxford that is very gendered. If the institution is not putting in the kinds of policies to address the sort of issues. So for instance, at Oxford, many departments have tried to take more seriously initiatives like Athena Swan um, with varying degrees of success. Um, but one of the things about that that's tricky, I think from the gendered perspective is um, 
white women tend to benefit more than women of color in terms of getting greater representation when there is a demand for gender equity. Um, so it's, you know, there's just, there's just so many different factors that are kind of working in constant sort of tension and friction um, with each other. But if I was to say kind of just one key thing um, is that a lot of these institutions and particularly Oxbridge, though Cambridge I think does slightly better than Oxford, um, work on a model of social reproduction, which is to say that the people at the top try to create a new generation of scholars who essentially uh, are cast in their same mold. So if that, if that doesn't change, it becomes really hard to break it. So the question is, so that means there's a twofold challenge. One is breaking that particular logic, that kind of cultural mode of social reproduction, okay? And then the other is coming up with new pipelines so that different sorts of people can enter academia. And I think those are the two challenges that, 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 that face, certainly face my institution. I think I think that, I think that's brilliant, and I think that's I think before and um, before we were able to join properly, I think that's one of the aims of East London Connect and this um, teaching at a top podcast. It's to say actually, because people like yourselves are at the top, hopefully you know we can change the generational reproduction of social uh, um, expectations of who can be a professor and who are kind of the producers of knowledge, not just recipients. So I think yeah. that's really, really, really exciting. So um, thank you so much for that brief conversation. What I want to do now is open it up to questions from uh, the audience. So if you please have a question, either you can type it in the chat or um, just unmute yourself and ask your question. So we'll open it up for questions. So anyone who wants to ask a question, um, this is your opportunity. I'm happy to start. Hi, thank you so much for, um, for, for telling us about your background and your journey. It's, it's, it's very interesting and um, it's particularly interesting to me because I'm currently writing a dissertation on strategies that black professionals adopt to transcend leadership constraints within organizations that have been shaped by white dominant culture. Um, and there's so much that you brought up with regards to access to resources like mentors and the social identity that you um, that you bring to the organization and also the social identity that people try and label you with in the organization um, and also with regards to fit and prototype and perceptions of leadership and I just wondered whether you could speak to what really needs to be um, to, to, to be done to address this because as I'm going through the dissertation and I'm asking people questions, I'm using, I'm doing it through the lens of organizational socialization. So I'm thinking about the way people, you know, anticipate going into organizations, how they assimilate in organizations and then what causes them to disengage or exit. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to see what the patterns are um, and so, and I just wondered whether that you could perhaps, you know, shed any light on that. Um, I think some of the patterns seem to be um, how you have been shaped um, in your secondary school, for example, you know, what sort of career path that you've been, you've been encouraged to go down, um, what sort of work experience that you did, you know, how the, how family, friends, media have, have really shaped your your perception of how you'll anticipate going into the workforce. So I, I just wondered whether you could shed any more light on this. Thanks for that, Yvonne. 
Should I, should we take um, a couple more questions and I can maybe answer three? Or... Yes, yes, uh, Jenny. Oh, sorry, I, I don't know if as, as Asia was first. Oh, oh, sorry, yes, oh, sorry. I, I, I should, um, sorry to mis mispronounce your name. <laughs> it's all right, you got it really, really right, actually. Um, thank you, uh, thank you for that, it's very rare. Um, I, I just wanted to ask a little bit about the ways in which um, these systems and these, uh, these structures that we're trying to open up to be kind of, uh, to, to change in the direction that we really need them to. Um, are actually capable of change mm. and whether it's I mean it's the, the implication of what I'm about to say basically negates your your work or not your work but your role Samukai, so I do I do apologize for that but um uh the, you know to what degree do we just do away with these institutions and not in a kind of like a, a kind of let's eat the rich way but just in a starting completely afresh uh and in a in in the image that we we want to see these institutions exist um and then to what extent if we're not going to do that do we kind of bridge the gap by including things like i'm not sure if you're familiar with decolonizing the curriculum the platform that that looks to uh and, and not just that but also i think it's called the black free university but the 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 platform that looks to um, open up um, and take down the ivory walls that, generally speaking, keep these uh, keep these institutions running the way they do. Sure. Okay. Um, are, are you happy to take one more? Let me take one one more for now. Um, Jen, Jenny, do you want to um, ask your question? Yeah, lovely. Thank you. So nowhere near as academic as those questions, but um, I'm the librarian at, at uh, Cambridge for the African Study Centre. Um, so yeah, so just interested to hear just, I know when I started um, in that role, uh, probably about five, six years ago now, um, the master's uh, course was very young. It was only about four years old. And um, our current director, um, Dr. Adam Branch, yeah, uh, you know, when he uh, took over the directorship, did a major overhaul on the reading list and, you know, recommendations for reading, etc. Um, and so we've seen a real shift, which was great as a librarian to support. Um, and obviously within that, then actually, the, you know, the uptake from um, uh, scholars of African descent and especially um, scholars from the African continent, like, you know, was huge yeah. um uh so i we'd always seen oxford as the place uh <laughs> to, to go to study african studies previous to that mm -hmm. so i don't know within that as well our role then yeah but as um as he was saying in terms of things like decolonizing the curriculum we've become quite central within that is that similar in oxford and is that kind of um you know the center being the focus of kind of black scholarship mm. is that is that you know, I, I, we see was slightly more integral there in, in Oxford, and we're trying to get there in Cambridge, if you see what I mean. I just wanted to hear a bit more of your experience about, you know, the, the centre of African studies, what it, what it, uh, what role it plays in terms of promoting black scholarship and supporting the students. Yeah, okay, those are all really brilliant questions. Um, Jenny, let me just start with, with yours. Um, um, so 
I've spoken quite a lot to Adam um, and I've been really impressed with the work that he's done um, at Cambridge and the initiative he's taken, both on thinking about decolonizing the curriculum and also being quite explicit in talking about the politics of race in African studies, which I think is quite unusual. Um, what's happening at Oxford is I think we're, we're entering a phase of a level of generational renewal. Um, so at the moment, so I'm in, I'm in international development, which we're, we're affiliated with the African Studies Center, but it's, you know, structurally two different departments, but I work very closely with, with, the, with the ASC. And African Studies is hiring a new associate professor, and the coming years will be hiring a new statutory professor. I think there's a lot more, um, the kind of impact that the debates around decolonization um, that have been taking place since the Rhodes Must Fall movements, you know, in 2015 and onwards. I think that's hit really hard and of course was given renewed impetus following the anti-racist protests of last summer. So I suspect that in a kind of um, really specific kind of narrow way around the teaching of African studies, we're going to see quite a bit of, of progress and um, re a, a degree of reinvention at Oxford, which is quite exciting. I think there are still some important weaknesses. One of the weaknesses is that historically speaking, African studies in Britain was um, kind of adjoined to the colonial project. So, you know, the earliest historians and anthropologists and, um, of, of Africa um, essentially tried to study native or primitive cultures as a way of rendering um, the, those kind of social formations sort of legible to colonizers and being able to kind of aid the expansion of the British Empire. I'm simplifying a bit, but that's kind of the basic thrust. And that's meant that, you know, even as we've sort of totally broken away from that particular style of scholarship, um, there's a sense in which African studies has been disconnected to Black studies more generally, to the experience of the diaspora and so on. So some institutions say in the United States, I'll give the example of uh, University of Pennsylvania, have been trying to um, pursue three strands. One, dealing with um, African studies in the continental sense. The second, dealing with the African-American experience. And the third, dealing with the global Black experience. And trying to bring those three together as a joint project. So you have both African and, um, and its kind of wider ambit. I think in the UK, that bridge hasn't been crossed yet. So you have a really rich and interesting tradition of people who study black culture in the black Atlantic. So I'm thinking here of the likes of people like Paul Gilroy at UCL or the older kind of cultural studies of Stuart Hall. And that was really about black Britain and the black diaspora, but separate from the study of Africa, which was really run by white people. And I think that that's kind of the next frontier um, that I think neither Oxford nor Cambridge have got to quite yet. Um, I think that's kind of what we need to be pushing to. The new appointment in Oxford will hopefully, you know, contribute to that because they're looking for somebody with, an, with more of an interest in cultural studies. Um, but I think that um, if we can create that demand from the students, um, the institutions will be pressured to kind of follow that lead. Which then takes me to Asya's question. Um, to what degree can we change these institutions? Do we start new ones? Look, there's no simple answer to that, obviously. Um, I guess I have a few different perspectives. Uh, I don't think 
a place like Oxford with its 800 year history and so on, you know, is going to change in any really radical way anytime soon, right? That's um, the kind of path dependency, the structural intransigence uh, is so great. That being said, um, I am a believer that to the extent that I'm in a place like that, I can use its resources and its platform and so on to do the things that I think are, are meaningful and to try to decolonize um, the curriculum. Now, the parameters might be relatively narrow, but I don't think they're empty. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I don't think that that precludes the idea that we need to be thinking as black communities kind of broadly conceived about more interesting and innovative ways of, um, how we contend with you know, the teaching of you know, sociology, culture, history, politics, and so on, that really speaks to, in a meaningful way, the Black experience. But what I'd say is that you know, in our kind of mental models of what social change looks like, um, I think it requires this kind of um, dispersed, multifaceted efforts to change people's consciousness and debate. And like, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me about last summer was suddenly debates that black people have been having for a very, very long time um, <laughs> were brought to the fore for a white audience that was quite ignorant of it. But it's happening, you know, it's happening sort of the Premier League, it's happening in law offices, it's happening in universities, it's happening in these different ways. Now, I don't think that we get the kind of total change that we want to deserve just in that moment. But I think it's part of this larger story and the more kind of grander sweep of history that these efforts do matter. You know, so in my in my dream more world, my more revolutionary world, sure, I you know, let's get rid of Oxford, let's get rid of Cambridge, and let's let's do something a bit more kind of interesting and radical. But in the here and now and slightly more pragmatic side of me, also the side of me that uh, needs to pay bills and eat dinner <laughs> <laughs> knows that, you know, there's a certain extent to which my job is just that. It is a job. Um, it's, you know, so I take it both sort of seriously in a vocational sense, but at the same time, I draw some boundaries around it. And I say, you know, this is, this is also just a job. Um, um, so I don't know if that kind of adequately answered the question, but I think it's, it's, it's really like uh, kind of an acceptance of the fact that social change does demand of us um, ongoing iterative dispersed efforts, and that some things are going to look quite epic and other things are going to look a lot more subtle. Mm -hmm. um, and then back to Yvonne's question. Oh God, um, there's so much to say about that. It's hard to know. It's hard to know where to begin. Um, so I think just to speak from my own experience, um, my entire education has in one way or another been shaped by white dominant cultures. Um, and I think one of the things, there's several things about that that are quite unfair and I think um, quite damaging in different ways, right? They challenge your conception of self. They make you look towards and value um, culture or way of being that is, you know, not your own. I mean, what business did I have growing up in Zimbabwe reading about castles and kings and wallpaper and cups of tea and so on, rather than reading about the things that I'm seeing in my daily life. You know, we were taught, we were taught to speak uh, or indigenous languages were not kind of held up with any prestige. And we were taught, you know, you have to speak the Queen's English and so on. You know, that was before I came to the UK, only to have that kind of doubled down. And I think one of the things that I took away from that, so this is 
school in Zimbabwe, at school in England, at medical school in the NHS in Oxford. So across a array of different institutions was that the kind of, there's a double insult, if you like. There's the fact that you're sort of alienated from the sense of your own kind of culture and background on the one hand. And then there's another side where you have to take white people's cultures really seriously and see it in all of its complexity and richness, you know? So you have to become conversant in the language of class. I had to become, because I'd studied in the North. Now you imagine this Zimbabwean kid who's barely been in England finds himself in the northeast of England and people expect me to know the subtleties of, you know, Geordie versus Mackham accents and the north-south divide and so on. And yet they're quite happy to speak about Africa as a country, you know. So the asymmetries are, are, are really kind of wild. And I think that's one of the burdens, one of the really key burdens is that if you are in these white dominant cultures, you become a little bit more mon monolithic and then the cultural landscape that you inhabit is much more multitudinous and the burden is on you to try to work out and figure that out to 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 to, to be skilled at socially navigating it and I'd say for me that's kind of um that's one of the biggest things I've seen about what assimilation sort of looks like um I am and watch this space um working on a book that's going to, in the very, very early stages of working on a book, that's going to try to get at these experiences a bit more because I, I wanna to try to push back against that because I think and this, uh, Richard ties to your question sort of quite early on. I think one of the ways in which we struggle to um, widen, broaden our universities and institutions for black people and so on is that, you know, you, you constantly feel like you're playing a game that's sort of rigged against you in one way or another. And it might be economically and structurally, or it might just be in these sort of subtle cultural manifestations. Uh, and I think starting to challenge that and also trying to create a more complicated series of narratives about what it means to be black in this country uh, is a small step toward trying to even these scales a bit. Thank you so much for that. And I've just, um, I'm going to put a link in the in the chat in the article that he talks about that a bit more um, from his journey from Zimbabwe to here and the interesting experiences. Excellent article. Uh, you know, he, he, he's a good writer. Does anyone have any other questions? Um, whilst people are putting their hand, uh, there's, there was one question that came up. I think we've touched on it, but I'll just read out the question to you. It says, um, how do we address this low numbers in academic leadership? So mm. I think we've drawn on it. Is there anything you wanted to add to that or? Yeah, I'm not sure if I have much additional. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We're having a lot of these debates and we've been having a lot of these debates just in my department. Um, and trying to think about how we get better. And what's been kind of interesting to me is um, there's an interesting generational shift and maybe that's not, that's one thing I haven't really talked about as much um, that we kind of have to <laughs> figure out where I think that a lot of younger people uh, are more willing to challenge um, certain norms or axioms about how British society and how race works. And I think the language of anti-racism, of intersectionality, of talking about whiteness is becoming more widespread. And I think that there is a generation of, uh, a generation of people for whom that, that marks kind of a shift. And I say this in part because um, 
I have, um, I have a colleague um, who I will not name or identify um, with whom uh, there's a real generational divide between us and about our respective understandings of what it means to be black men in Oxford. Um, and it's partly because we've, we've, we've just had these really different ways in which we've both assimilated into um, white society and what he's willing to put up with, he thinks I should be willing to put up with because that's how we change things and I kind of disagree. And that's led to some, some really difficult clashes. Um, and so I think also opening up that gener generational dynamic uh, around the conversation starts to help us to get at some of the other aspects of what leadership might look like or entail and how people begin to think about who can be a leader and to what end. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think so. Do we have any more questions? Because I I have one question. <laughs> I noticed okay. that Yvonne had another hand up. Uh, yes, exactly. So I just wanted to see if there's anybody else who hasn't spoken so far, who would like to ask a question. This is your chance. Okay. Before we go to um, Yvonne, I wanted to um, ask a question, and I think this is just um, it, this is this comes to the core of what. Uh, oh, we have a question. We have a question. If someone who hasn't asked a question already, so I've seen two hands of questions of people who have already asked questions. So I'm prioritizing people who haven't asked a question so far. So, um, so my question um, to get to the core of you know what East London Connect does. You know, I work with kids in from year that are eleven. You know, from year seven to year thirteen, A level students, undergraduates, to kind of understand how do they fulfill their full education and career potential. So I guess, you know, this is probably an interesting question, but what would you say to a 16-year-old now, maybe a, a Zim, a Zimbabwean young kid who is in London, let's say not in the most affluent area, but what advice would you give him about potentially um, thinking about research and academia? Mm. Um, so I would say that one of the most exciting things about being an academic, um, and one of the reasons why it's something to take seriously is that it's a career that offers a lot of room for expansion and reinvention. You know, you, um, it has the potential to give you a lot of autonomy over the intellectual interest that you want to pursue. And it's, it's best, it's, it, academia at its best allows for a degree of kind of innovation in the sense of like the range of things that you can look at or study. When I, uh, when I was growing up, I had no idea that um, there was such a thing that I could kind of study politics or African politics or any of these sorts of issues for a living. You know, I, I had quite a narrow conception of what careers look like. You become a doctor, you become a lawyer, whatever it is, right? And I think that expanding people's sense of the horizons that potentially exist for them and that they could, that those are available to them is like a really important message. That's one thing. The other piece of advice, which is now my word of warning, um, I would say that the experience that you have at university kind of socially matters as a lot not just the academic or intellectual experience that you have. So for instance, when I went to medical school and I went to Newcastle, I didn't really think a lot about what it would be like to be at 
Newcastle Medical School, to be the only black man in a cohort of 250, to be living so far away from everyone I know and everything that was familiar to me. It was like the prestige of having got to medical school was more important. And in retrospect, I can see the damage that that did to me in terms of my own mental health and the struggles that I experienced at that time. And I think that university uh, and academic life can offer you a lot more than what happens in books and what happens in, in libraries. It's about the kind of social environment you get to nurture, the opportunity to really discover aspects about how you think about the world and to try to engage it increasingly on your own terms, because you're kind of transitioning into that period of adulthood. And I think that like that has to happen in an environment that feels sufficiently challenging um, but also safe enough that it doesn't just become um, a kind of traumatic experience, you know? So you want, that, you want that level of challenge that doesn't sort of top over into something just, you know, really kind of toxic and exhausting. And in that sense, and I have said this to certain black kids before, that I don't always think going to say Oxford is for everyone. That like, you know, Oxford is great, but it's not the only university experience out there, for instance. And so people need to just think about these various aspects of what their experience is going to be. Um, so I think that would be those, those, those would be my two kind of key pieces of advice. Thank you for that. I think that's really, really important. And um, uh, I just wanted to, I uh, thank you for that last point as well. I think we, in this country, we privilege Oxford and Cambridge. Yes, they are, you know, they, they've been around for 800 years, but it's one form of knowledge. If you, if, if you don't mind me saying, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's less or, or better I'm just saying it's one form of knowledge and I think you know if you go to a different university it doesn't mean you can't be an outstanding academic for example yeah. um, um, so um, we have two more questions well we have oh now the questions are coming out the, the, the questions are coming thick and fast so we're going to take uh, we, we've got a few more so the first person was please I know I'm Nigerian but I'm not a full Nigerian so if I pronounce your name incorrectly please forgive me is it Kunle? yeah okay yeah richard that's that's right um okay, you okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. i wasn't sure about yeah. the first part so i just said kunle. i just got yeah. to kunle. okay um yeah. go ahead and ask yeah. your question yeah uh my question is actually similar to to the previous question you just answered now um the the only difference uh about the question is um you're looking at someone who is not a young adult say uh, someone who's already grown up um already has a phd elsewhere in the world, uh, particularly coming from Africa, a Black-dominated environment, of course, different. Um, and you've already formed your values, you've already understood your culture, and you're very strong in your culture. And then suddenly you find yourself uh, in a white-dominated environment, of course, in the UK, or say a similar environment like Australia and New Zealand, where you know, the entire system is, is white-dominated. and and you try to navigate into becoming uh, a top academia in this, you know, the, I feel like the challenges is quite different from, from if you were there for say 16 years and like, like the examples you've been given now. At that stage, it's, it's completely different and it could be challenging. Uh, I experienced it myself uh, in New Zealand where I did my postgraduate study. So uh, I just want a bit of uh, information or advice or experience that you may have in, in helping to navigate such, such uh, a situation. um shall we take the two more questions and i'll yes so we have two more questions so we have 
Archie, if you would like to ask your question, and then um, after Archie, we have Anale. Um, Archie? Do you want to unmute your mic? Uh, okay, we'll we'll come back to Archie. Hello. Okay, we'll come back to Archie. Um, Anale, do you want to ask your question? Um. Okay. Sure. So, find out your thoughts on um. At what point do you think um we draw the line between um. I suppose uh, decolonization and sort of removing that association with um, some of these colonial symbols, um, and I suppose particularly as particularly as an academic, um, preserving history. So, like for example, I'm Zimbabwean myself, and I grew up in Zimbabwe, um, learning about Cecil. <laughs> Only difference was um, it was in a glorified way. Mm -hmm. But I still think at some point, um, you know, it, I think it's important to, to learn about the, the heartbeat of history. But I just wanted to hear your thoughts, particularly with the summer and, you know, people, a lot of people are proponents of getting rid of a lot of um, the colonial um, symbols. But um, at the same time, you know, they do um, sort of um, hold important history. And I'd like to hear your thoughts as an academic as well, in terms of like drawing that line with um, preserving history. Sure. Um, so as I've done before, I'll, I'll take the questions in reverse order. Um, so Anele, I, I guess my view on this, which is, I guess in some, in some circles might be considered a bit of a radical one, but I actually don't think that it is, um, is that I don't, actually think things like you know colonial symbols like statues things of that nature you know if we're going to be talking about some of the debates today around the statue of Rhodes or say the Colston statue in, in Bristol various other artifacts I, I actually am not a firm believer that they preserve history um, I think that they give us a quite narrow and limited view of the past and they're really more about memorialization than they are about history which is to say that I think for most people, um, just in the public sense, going about our everyday lives, we often have and are exposed to a relatively narrow view of the com complexity that mark historical events. And when that's the case, the work that memorialization does is not so much about bringing that complexity to the fore and giving us a better sense of who we are and where we've come from, but rather it's about trying to shape the terms in which we talk about certain things in the present. So colonial artifacts and statues are really about the articulation of a particular worldview and a particular uh, way of thinking about the past. If one wants to have a more complicated, nuanced, or interesting view of history, then that changes, and that that's the that's the kind of remit of school curriculum. It's about the um, things that we do and research in universities. It's about the books we publish, and so on. Okay, then that opens a question, right? So then, what do we do 
with respect to memorialization. And for me, I think a lot of public memorialization um, moves in tandem with social change. So at some part, um, at some points in time, we're happy having certain people commemorated in public space, but societies across the world over time are constantly changing and reinventing whose portrait is up, whose comes down, what goes into a museum, what's shipped out and so on. So I don't, I don't feel a particularly strong attachment to any given statue at a given point in time. I don't think that we necessarily lose something by taking it down because we can erect something new. And then that itself becomes a part of history. And I think that public memorialization as it shifts is a reflection of how culture shifts about who becomes worthy of public attention. You know, so at a certain point that might be Rhodes and at other times we might want to say, commemorate different sorts of figures. So I guess that's, that's, that, that's how I see it. I think that this stuff should be lively. It should be debated and I don't, feel particularly precious or anxious or worried that um, certain colonialists or slave owners or uh, perpetrators of genocide and so on, who we've honored for many you know, centuries ought to stay there forever. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, trying to navigate the white academic world when you've come from Africa and slightly older, I mean, <laughs> I <don't> <laughs> I don't know if I can give you a satisfying answer to that question. Um, I mean, I think coming here when you're, you're 16, you know, I came by myself. I think that had certain trade-offs. I think I would have felt more anchored in my sense of personal identity had I come later, but I would have also found, and I would have had less time to kind of adapt um, to the society in the way that I did when I was younger. So I think that there are trade-offs. Certainly, I think, um, if you're doing this within academia, the, 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 the need for a sense of community is just so important. Um, and I think the other thing is that there are so many unwritten rules that kind of shape you know, universities or any professional environment kind of touching on Yvonne's question earlier. And if you come in slightly, you know, a bit older for postgraduate studies and so on, you know, having that awareness that you're you're entering a new environment with its with its own kind of cultural logic and rules, many of which are are, are hidden. And certainly in the case of Britain, there's like so many taboos um, and so many things on social etiquette about what can and can't be said and in what setting and so on. And that takes a while to figure out. And I think trying to have the sense of community and the, the, the kinds of cultural interlocutors that can make the opacity of that um, clearer is easier. And then of course, learning how to play the academic game in this environment looks very different to what it does uh, say at an African university or even what it would look like if you're in the United States. So I think that that's the other thing is that learning the, the, learning the rules of the game becomes really important. Thank you so much for that. So we've got uh, a few more questions, but just because of the delay that we had through the, through the technical difficulty at the beginning, um, I just want to respect everybody's time. So I just want to let those, for those who have to um, head off, just to let you know, this podcast will be available by next Friday on Apple um, Podcasts and also on Spotify. So if there's anything you've missed, anything you want to go back to, it will be available also on our website, www.eastlanderconnect.org, and then you'll see our podcast section. So this information will um, be available to you if, you're, if you have to dash off um, because of time. So we have a few more questions for those who are able to stay on. 
um, we have a question from Archie. Um, are you ready um, for your question? Archie, do you, Archie, do you want to unmute your mic? Okay, yeah, well, Archie, hello. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to Archie again. Um, so we've had one from Marella, and then we also have another one from Jenny. Uh, so, yeah, Marella, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, I do. Hi, um, so you've spoken really heavily about mental health um, during this conversation and how it impacted you during your time, especially during your undergrad years. And I thought that was really interesting because, um, you know, as much as we talk about wanting to get black kids or black people into the academic space, I think we also need to realize how hostile it can be when you even enter those spaces outside of just, you know, the Oxford, Cambridge, Russell groups, you know, even as simple going to Canterbury Christchurch, because these, these institutions weren't created with us in mind, if we're being honest from the start. So what I also wanted to know is, do you think maybe as well as academics, we need to focus on having um, black or other minor, minorities um, in positions that also deal with um, like the pastoral care of um, black students because I don't necessarily think that there's enough and like I remember when I was an undergrad and I went to speak to somebody and it just felt like there was a disconnection um, and not being able to speak to somebody who looked like you and I had the opportunity to study abroad I went to Spelman College which is in Atlanta Georgia and it's at HBCU and so for me, I noticed a complete like shift in my mental health when I was in an environment that was created for me, you know, one with me in mind. So I think that we need to discuss a little bit more about not just getting people in, but preparing them and not just coaching them in the sense of like, this is how you write an essay and you get a first. And then this is how you um, write the job application to get yourself into whichever corporate environment. I think that we need to have more um, honest dialogues about the mental and emotional weight that is kind of placed upon the shoulders of young people and postgrads. And postgrads, as we know, come at any age. Um, because all of us have dreams, we all have aspirations and we all kind of want to improve our lives. And when we enter these academic environments, we have big dreams, we have huge hopes. But I've noticed that you there's there's constantly a conversation about like how strong you are mentally etc but I don't ever think that people are generally weak I just think that it chips away at you slowly and surely and then it kind of makes you I don't know it kind of is like the sunken place in us <laughs> you know so you look crazy but you're not crazy um mm. and then I don't know some people process it differently and and I think it can lead to a lot of anger and resentment for these places um, yeah, sorry, it turned into a statement. But... Um, no, thank you so much for that. Do you want to um, address? Oh, no, so we actually have one more question. Uh, do you want to take one more question um, and answer two at the same time? Or Sure, if there's one more, I'll... I'll... Um, so we have, um, uh, I think it was um, Jenny who had another question. Yeah, uh, just looking at the chat, Archie's having issues um, 
I don't know whether he he's having issues with his question, but um, actually, um, <laughs> Morella, um, it kind of leads on uh, from your question forward slash statement, which mine is going to turn into a statement too, um, that I was going to ask, you know, uh, myself and Richard, this is how we met. Um, you know, Richard came to my library as a student who wanted to do the work that he's doing now. Um, and being probably one of, I don't know, two or three um, people of uh, ethnic minority within Cambridge as a librarian, being able to uh, facilitate that was quite difficult and understanding what the needs were um, for that particular age group um, was quite difficult as well. But, you know, how to, as a profession, professional, but not an academic um, in support services, like a, as a you know, a librarian or an administrator or, you know, a nurse or whoever within the university structure, how we can better um, provide those kind of inlets um, for people who want to come to university because, yeah, at the moment, I'm happy to do anything. <laughs> um, however, it all, it all does come down on me and I had a very different experience coming through, you know, to where I am now. So it does like you say in terms of mental health and the ability to do that it suddenly becomes a bit huge thinking there's lots of 16 year olds dreams on your shoulders you know so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah any comments welcome <laughs> yeah no i mean um i think those are both really powerful and important facets of this discussion um and you know jenny i i I really get that because I've also, since becoming a faculty member, been on the receiving end where, you know, students have come into my office who I don't even teach, um, but they were said, you know, I heard so-and-so said that uh, you are the person to talk to. Um, and, or I've had, I remember talking to one student, um, Zmawing actually, and he had studied in, in the States before he, 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 um, came to Oxford and you know he kind of sat in my office for a while and I knew something was wrong and the conversation had begun as like we're just sort of two you know you're the Zimbabwean professor I'm Zimbab you know and and he's just like yeah I've just found this place really uncomfortable and I was like you mean you're shocked at how white it is and he's like oh thank god you said it you know and then that kind of opened up but I think the really serious point is, so I'll, I'll just use an example from my own life. Um, and Mirella, this kind of speaks to your point. Some point when I was midway through my doctorate, something happened. Like it was, it was a trivial thing at face value, but it triggered this like emotional reaction in me. And I couldn't understand it. I was like, I'm feeling an incredible degree of anxiety and stress over this relatively minor thing that happened. And at the time, I didn't necessarily have the vocabulary I have now to think about this sort of thing, but it was my system saying, um, it's that kind of a red flag for me. Whenever I feel like I feel excessively anxious or stressed about something that is either like quotidian or relatively small, that's my system telling me that that's activated something else. Anyway, I followed that kind of instinct, but couldn't quite put it together. And I, I went to see um, the university counseling services. And the counselor I saw was a very, you know, gentle, uh, kind man, but an old white man. We sat in and we talked for a bit. Then after about 
two sessions, maybe three sessions, he said to me, you know, I think that you are too mentally healthy to use our service. And so then that kind of ended it. And I was none the wiser about what happened. So suffice it to say that whatever it was that had triggered me, so to speak, that had activated this sense of anxiety and so on, didn't go away. It was temporarily eased because I was like, well, this guy says I'm fine, so I'm probably okay. Things came crashing down a couple of years later, um, but much worse. And it was a very strange period because I had been experiencing a tremendous amount of academic success. You know, I had completed my doctorate faster than anyone in my cohort. I had been nominated you know, for national prizes. I was getting shortlisted for jobs. And I was in real turmoil um, on a more personal individual level. And I, I couldn't really understand it. And I knew I needed to talk to someone. So I went and decided just to go private rather than go through the university or through occupational health. And I, and I spoke to someone, I spoke to a woman of color who has expertise in um, dealing with questions of identity, culture, alienation, all of that kind of stuff. We had one session and that session, I just told her you know, a few different things about my life, my work, what I was doing. And I didn't really think that I had revealed anything particularly, you know, meaningful. And she said to me at the end of the session, I was kind of nervous, you know, so I was sort of testing the waters. And she said to me at the end of the session, she said to me, okay, I think that your problem is that you have a really fragmented sense of personal identity. And that is causing all of these other issues in your life. And you're now trying to initiate the process of addressing that. And, you know, it just hit me so hard. I was like, wow, that speaks to my soul in this really profound way. And I've never in all of this time that I've been living away from home and going through these institutions and so on, felt this sense of both self-disclosure and revelation where um, the internal dissonances that I was experiencing um, could be identified and could be recognized as a source of strain on my mental health and well-being. you know? So each time I had seen counseling or therapist before it was it, it had never quite got to that level of depth and I think for me this is part of the trouble when trying to get at mental health well-being counseling services and so on in a predominantly white institution with people who maybe don't have the training the experience um, the exposure whatever it is in that environment is that you're, you're, it's hard to, you, you, I, I mean, you have a few different reactions. I think for me, the one that I, I've experienced a lot is almost like the social cultural baggage doesn't really matter. And the counselor is just trying to deal with you as the individual patient. Whereas my current therapist will talk about whiteness, will talk about politics and so on. And she's so good at telling me, okay, this thing is about kind of culture and your social environment. And this thing is about you. And this is about your individual quirks that you need to deal with, you know? And, I, and I, I've never experienced that kind of holistic um, and really thoughtful kind of therapy um, through the institutions I've been a part of. And so this is just my long-winded way, Mirella, of saying that like, I fully agree with you and recognize exactly what you're saying. And that I do think that we place a tremendous burden 
you know, in letting people into these spaces and in no way adapting institutions for those particular needs. Just mm. being like, you know, it's the add black people and stir kind of mentality. Um, because there has to be that kind of cultural shift. There has to be that policy shift. And it has to be about not just representation in a banal sense, but a real internalization of how um, the kind of dominance of white people in these institutions does create a culture. You know, white people are not like just atomistic existing out there kind of neutral and bland. They have a culture of their own, but because they're in that position of power, it becomes the water we swim in and that they can't see, you know? <laughs> and so I think trying to, trying to demystify that and trying to take these other experiences really seriously is crucially important. And if we don't do that, then we end up getting the situation that you're describing, which is that the burden falls um, on the few academics of color, administrators of color, you know, who are kind and empathetic and so on, but this is not their profession. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, and that can also add a mental health burden on you, uh, carrying that weight and that guilt and that sense of compassion for people. And for me, that's kind of like the biggest thing. And, and you know, probably should be saying this, but you know, we're here now. Um, part of the reason why I don't live in Oxford and live in London is just to preserve that sense that I have an identity of my own that's not entirely shaped by the professional position I occupy within the institution, which is, I think, the other danger that comes with being like one of the few minority people in a really powerful institution is that it can sort of claim you for so much to become the voice of so many different things. And I think that it's important to have for me that 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 bit of distance but anyway no i i think this is fun i think this is a, a great conversation i hope everyone's enjoying it i think that statement and these questions were it's phenomenal because i think you know as a black men or as black people you know there's so much drive about achievement black achievement you know lawyer doctor you've been told from yen from from nine why did you get an e or why did you get a b why did you get an a you know it should be a star but no one really talks about, you know, the cumulative effect after, you know, many years of saying, okay, achievement, but for what? And achievement based on what identity? You know, oh, I'm a good son now because, or a good daughter now because I have X, Y, Z. And I think I love um, the, the, the openness of this conversation. I love your honesty and your vulnerability there because I think, you know, this is also part of the teaching at the top, Black Men in Academia, modeling for other men, younger or older, to say, actually, strength isn't just having all the answers and strength isn't just saying oh actually um i have no weaknesses strength is admitting a weakness and drawing strength from somewhere um so so i i admire that and i think that's also part of this you know black men teaching at the top how do we how do we as men open up about our emotional identity <laughs> you know it's not just about providing it's not just about um being um, in a position or having a status is actually saying how do we take the next generation to actually understand um, this emotional side and I, I just to touch on that I just wanted to also say that um, uh, Oxford and well, I know at least at Cambridge I know that they are now taking on more um, counsellors of who are black basically um, and I think um, that's been appreciated by the student faculty and I'm sure they're probably doing something similar up um oxford but um and also the um the the oxford acs are fantastic at advocating for different people's issues if they're going through mental health so that that is that's a you know i you know i'm 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 just 
I'm just enjoying the moment at this moment in time, guys. Um, I'm, uh, so does anyone have any other questions before I um, bring this um, great conversation to a close? Any burning questions from anyone? Okay. Thank you, everyone, so much for your patience. Thank you, Sim, Simika, for your, you know, just your, your just your brilliance, your openness, and just taking us on your journey, and just opening our minds to just kind of like the, the complexities of academic life. Thank you so much, everyone, for taking your time this evening. I really, really appreciate each and every single one of you. And um, this podcast, like I said, will be available um, by next probably next Friday um, on um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And also, if you would like to be added onto um, our mailing list so you can find out about our next podcast uh, next month, please indicate with a hand up. But thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Have a brilliant evening. And once again, thank you so much, Sekena, for just a brilliant conversation this evening. Like People are applauding. It's just, you know, I'm just going to soak in this moment for a while. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me.